Um, we're continuing this morning our emphasis on worship. And so most of the time, for most of us, when we think about worship, we think about what we just did, right? Gathering here with the people of God, singing to God, hearing his word, prayer, those are the things we think of. And that's appropriate. We call this a worship service. And so that's the appropriate way to think of this morning. But the question for us this morning is, is it possible for all of our life to be worship? Or are we just limited to saying, like, worship is this hour on Sundays? Can all of life be worship? That's the question for us this morning that we want to tackle. So if just Sunday mornings are worship, then when you do the math, that means that we worship God 0.6% of the week. So that's less than 1% of the week. So if this is the only worship, right, if worship is just what we do when we gather here and sing, then that's 0.6% of our week. So I don't know what percentage it's supposed to be, but I'm pretty sure we would all agree like that's probably too low, right? For God, for all that he's done for us, for all who he is, it's too low. So then what percentage should we try to push that up to? So we try to extend our worship, don't we? Our friends down in Asbury, Kentucky, our brothers and sisters in Christ, are trying to extend a worship service for days and weeks on end. And you can look that up and, and learn about it. And the ripples of that are spreading out around the world, and it's beautiful. However, a nonstop worship service, as wonderful and as impactful as that might be, isn't practical. It's not sustainable um, for our long-term lives and of worship. Um, but so most of us try our best to worship a little more throughout the week, right? So we try to push that percentage up to maybe we can get it to like 2 or 3%. And that's like the devout ones in the room, right? That means you're up in the morning and you're reading the Bible before work. And at the evenings, you're, you're saying your evening prayers and you're praying before meals and you're listening to K-Love on the radio. And we're able to get that percentage point up to maybe 6 7%, right? Which is, which is good, but the, the premise for this morning is, but what if it was possible that we could think of our whole life as worship? What if we just weren't trying to chase a percentage point, but the whole of life could be worship? That doesn't demean what we do here. It, doesn't, it means you should still pursue worship on your own. That's why we gave you this book. There's pages in it that you can worship personally, just you and God. There's pages in it where you can worship with a small group of people around you as you work through the questions. There's pages in here where you can worship together as a family. But what we want to say this morning is beyond just those, can we say, active experiences of worship, can we say, are there ways where we can sort of passively be worshiping? Is there a way where we could say, like, you know, I can't think about God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But even without actively thinking about God, is it possible that the works of my hands and my mind could still be worship? The accountant needs to focus his mind on the math, right? The mechanic must focus his efforts on the car. The doctor, we would all agree, must focus their efforts not on praise and worship music, but on the insides of my body as they're operating on me, right? So it's not possible for us to uh, 124 hours a day focus on God, and God knows that. Our definition of worship in our booklet is this. It says, uh, worship is our reverent and grateful response to the Lord that seeks to honor him for his great attributes and good gifts. The definition is written such a way so that it doesn't have to be limited to prayer and singing. The definition is written that way so that we can look at it and be like, okay, so whatever I go into today, if I am going into it and my heart's res- is, it's responding to the goodness of God, so there's a level of gratitude for what I am experiencing or what I'm about to walk into, 
And then as I am in this activity, I am trying to honor God in the midst of this activity. Well, then in a certain sense, we're saying, okay, now you're in this category of worship with your day or with your life. So in that sense, we're trying to see that all of life can be worship. If the accountant goes into work grateful for the opportunity he has to work, and then in his work of crunching the numbers, he is able to honor God by working and doing his best, then I think we're in this category of saying, like, well, that is worship. Worship isn't limited to just the reading of the Bible and the prayers and the meditation on Scripture. I think it can be all of life. So uh, we see this from Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 is the Apostle Paul writing, and he says this. I think we have it for our screens. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. On Friday this last week, I was out raking some leaves. Um, it was like a sunshiny day, and I was like, I need to be outside. So I had all these leaves gathered around, and so I thought I'll clear them out of the front yard. And as I'm doing it, I'm thinking to myself, how can I, if, if I'm going to preach it, then how can this activity be worship? And so I tried to be grateful that I was outside and moving. I tried to be grateful for the sun that was shining and grateful for the opportunity to exercise. And I think all of our life can be worship. It's possible for us to worship even when we're doing something as mundane as raking the leaves. But let's walk through Paul's logic for how we get there. He starts off and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So Paul is saying... uh, We're jumping right into a a whole letter he's writing to a church, a group of Christians that lived in Rome. He's written the first 11 chapters of this book, and he has, in those first 11 chapters, elaborated on the mercies of God. And so he's saying, I'm appealing to you to live your life as a living sacrifice for God, which is spiritual worship, but I'm appealing to you based upon the mercies of God. Don't just do it because I tell you to do it. Do it because you have just read 11 chapters about how amazing God is. So he's established such things as we are justified by faith, not by our works. He's established the fact that we have been adopted into God's family. Now I am a child of God. He's established that we are now no longer under a law, but we are now under grace. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We have peace with God. We have been reconciled to God. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We have the hope of heaven to come. We know that God will be faithful to us in the present These are all the mercies of God as Paul sees them and many more. So as we approach this idea that all of our life can be worship, then we're motivated by these mercies of God that Paul sees. We can ask ourselves the question, what are the mercies that you see though? Romans 1 through 11 is Paul saying, these are the mercies of God as I see them. If you had to say, here are the mercies of God as I see them, hopefully you've experienced them as well and they can motivate you in your life. This last week on a Wednesday, I was with Awana, which is our uh, kids program for preschoolers up through um, sixth grade. They gather on Wednesday evenings, they play games for about 30 minutes, they have a Bible lesson for about 30 minutes, and then they memorize some scripture verses for about 30 minutes. My role in Awana is I help them memorize their verses. So it's this great opportunity where as a caring adult, you have the opportunity to have like 10 minutes of a kid's attention. And in that 10 minutes of that kid's attention, 
you get to talk with them about a Bible verse and what it means. So I don't know about you, but oftentimes I'm like, man, I wish I could just have an opportunity to share the gospel in a given week. Well, I'll tell you the opportunities I get to share the gospel in a given week, it's most of the time in Iwana when I'm working with a child. So if you're like, I wish I could just share my faith with someone, maybe volunteer in Iwana or in a program and you might just get that opportunity. So this last week I was working with this boy. He's new to our Iwana program and he was working on a verse. The verse he was working on was Titus 3, 4 to 5. It said, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works of righteousness that we have done, but by his mercy through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So he worked on that for a while because they're young minds. They memorize so fast. So then my favorite thing to do is just ask the kids if they understand what it means. So that verse says, uh, when the goodness and kindness of God appeared, I said to him, do you, when do you think the goodness and kindness appeared? And he looked at me and said, God? And I said, that's a good answer. Um, you're very smart. Um, that is often the right answer. So when the goodness of God appeared, remember we just celebrated Christmas? Maybe it was at Christmas whenever God appeared and was born and Jesus came to earth. Maybe that's when the kindness of God appeared. So what did Jesus do after he grew up? And the boy said, well, he died on the cross. I was like, yes, he died on the cross. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. Now, why did the goodness of God have come? And when he saved us, why did he save us? And the boy said right away, because he had just memorized it, he said, why did he save us? Not because of works of righteousness. I was like, yes, yes, that's right. Not because of anything you've done. Not by your works of righteousness. He didn't save you because you did good things. So, so why did he save you? And he said, um, I don't know what mercy means. I was like, oh, okay, okay. I'm like on the fly, right? So I pull out my wallet and I say, okay, what is mercy? Mercy is if you steal my wallet and you spend all my money. And then I find out that you stole my wallet and you spent all my money. And I go to you and I say, I forgive you and I'm not going to get you in trouble at all. I forgive you. That's mercy. And God loved us so much that he looked down and saw all the bad things that we did. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to get you in trouble. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the punishment for that, those bad things you did. And I'm going to let you go free. I'm going to forgive you. And I'm not going to get you in trouble. I was like, that's why God saved us. Because he loves us so much. He wanted to take the punishment for himself. And then, you know, time was up. And we had to go. And they ran down to game time. And it was, a, it was a nice moment for us together. And I don't know yet if that boy has experienced the mercies of God. But hopefully as I tell that story, it connects with something in your heart, in your mind. And you're like, oh, wow. God has forgiven me of so much. He has given me his mercy. And because I remember that mercy he's shown me, that motivates me to want to worship him. Because of the mercies of God. Paul's going to go on in Romans chapter 12 and he's going to tell us how to live lives as people who give out mercy. He's going to say things in Romans chapter 12 like, you should weep with those who weep. He's going to say, if your enemy is hungry, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. 
He's going to say, overcome evil with good. He's going to say, bless people who persecute you. Paul is going to make the point in Romans chapter 12 that you need to go out of here and you need to live lives of mercy. You've received mercy and now you should go out there and live lives where you extend mercy to others. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 is Paul bridging the gap. You see his amazing mercies and you need to go live out his amazing mercies. But before you go and live them out, here's what you got to do. Romans chapter 12 verse 1, you have to worship. It has to flow out of a heart of worship where you're appreciating all that God has given to you and you respond in worship and then you go out and live for him. That's why we put our vision as a church together in the way that we have. We've said the first thing we do as a church is we receive God's grace. And we say there's an arrow pointing down and that's us receiving God's grace. Everything in our life is his grace and we receive it all. And then we have an arrow that points up and we say or the response to that is to worship. And so as we respond in worship, then we connect in community and then we go out to live on mission as people of mercy. It's why it flows that way. It's because that's the logic of the Apostle Paul. It's the logic of the Bible. Once you have received it, then you give him worship. Try to connect in community so you don't have to go alone. And then go out there and live lives of mercy and love your enemy and do good to those who persecute you. But it has to flow out of a heart of worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. So present to present your body, we're tapping into this Old Testament language, Old Testament concepts. We've talked about those in previous weeks. Old Testament, they were presenting sacrifices at the altar. As they walked up to that tabernacle or that temple, the altar was right in front of them. And to enter into God's presence, you had to bring a sacrifice and put it on the altar. You had to present a sacrifice. So the idea of present is the idea of give. You have to walk into that space with something to give. So you present your bodies. Present means to give. I don't know about you, I can only speak for myself, but oftentimes when I think of worship, I don't automatically, by default, think of giving. I often associate worship with receiving, right? Like, I want to go to that worship service so that I can feel the music, so that I can hear the sermon, so that I want to be encouraged, I want to be inspired. I'm walking into this worship service today because I need something, I need to receive from God, I need... So in one sense, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Because what we just established is the first step is to receive from God his amazing grace. But there's another sense in which all of those things that I just said were all very me-focused. We were consumed with the things that we want to receive. And so it has to shift is once we've received that grace, something in our hearts have to shift so that now as we worship, we are giving back to God the worship that he deserves for what he has given to us. So we do receive and then we give. Worship is about giving. Just think about it. If we all walked into church with the desire to give, we're all here. I'm here to give. I'm here to present. As I walk in, I am here to give. Then God would be given so much worship. If we walked in here to give, and we say, I'm going to give my attention to God. I'm going to give my attention to the other people in this room. I'm going to give out love to other people in this room. I'm going to walk into this space with attitude. I am here to give. I am here to present. You know what would happen? We would all leave feeling exponentially greater encouragement. 
because every one of us will be focused on giving love and encouragement to one another. And so we would just all be giving away love and encouragement to one another as well as to God. If we could shift our attention away from receiving and shift it on to giving, presenting. I walk in here to give a gift. We live in a consumeristic culture. And so when I walk into the restaurant, I give them my money and they give me food. When I walk into the hairdresser, I give them money and they give me a haircut. Theoretically. Um, when I walk into a movie, I give them money and they give me entertainment. When I walk into church, I give money and then they give me... Oh, see, that's where we got to stop. we got to break this cycle. I don't walk into church... And I give my money so that transactionally then God will give me something in return or the people around me will give me what I want. We have to be careful because that's not worship, that's consumerism. And we've got to remember too, we're not just talking about church this morning, we're talking about all of life. So we might want to break the consumerisms in our hearts even when we walk into the restaurant. I get it, we give our money, we get our food, that's great. But we walk into the restaurants with hearts that say like, I'm going to give... I'm going to present my body in this space. I'm going to present my eyes and my ears and my mouth and my stomach to worship God. I'm going to enter into this space with a spirit of gratitude for the gifts I'm about to receive, and I want to honor God as I experience it. You walk into the hairdresser and you give them your hair. Wait. I haven't connected all the dots yet. Maybe you give the hairdresser your ears and you listen and pay attention to them. You walk into the movie and you give your eyes and your ears and your mind and your heart not to worship the movie. But as you leave the movie, as you experience the movie, you think differently about the beauty of God's creation. You think differently and, and carefully about relationships that you're involved in. You think about truth and you think about the complexities of our human experience. And so that all of life, this can be an experience of worship if we bring into it a mindset where we're giving ourselves to God with gratitude, wanting to honor him everywhere we go, with every opportunity we have. I think we walked into businesses that way, just like we should walk into church that way. I think it has the power to transform the society. I think you walk back out of that business and that teller or that uh, service provider says, wow, what a kind person. Wow, that customer is always so positive. Wow, that person is such a good listener. Wow, that person is such an encouragement to me whenever they come into my business. If we could stop walking into churches and businesses and homes with an attitude of receiving, and we could start walking into churches and businesses and homes with an attitude that I am entering into this space to present my body as a living sacrifice, and it's my spiritual act of worship, I think it has the opportunity to transform the society as we stand out as people that are different from the others around us. That comes from the idea of presenting. We present our bodies. We present our bodies. And you might say, well, what about our hearts? What about our minds? What about our spirits? Shouldn't we be presenting those things? And the answer is yes, yes, yes. Paul thinks, I th I'm assuming, that if you think about your body, it's sort of all-inclusive. Within your body is your heart and your soul and your mind and your spirit. And so it's all a package Spirituality is very popular right now. You're not going to uh, get picked on or made fun of if you go out into society and talk about how you want to be a spiritual person. So some of that ideas have, have creeped into our own Christianity, like we highlight, we elevate spirituality over 
our bodies sometimes, and so we can sometimes say things to one another that don't make any sense. So you might say, oh, I've missed seeing you at church on Sundays. And they say, yeah, I don't go there much anymore, but, but God knows my heart. God knows my heart. You say, I want to say, yeah, God, God does know your heart, and he does care about your heart, but he also cares about your body. And he cares about where your body is. He doesn't just care about where your heart is. We say things to each other like, wow, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? I didn't know Christians talk that way. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But God's, God's really just cares about my heart. Yeah, God does care about your heart. But you know what else God cares about is your mouth. He cares about your mouth. It's part of your body. You say, you watch that kind of stuff. I didn't think Christians watched that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I, it's fine. God, God knows my heart. Yes, God does know your heart. He certainly does. But you know what else God cares about in addition to your heart? Is he cares about your eyes, and he cares about your mind, and he cares about your sexual desires. We don't just present our hearts to God. We present our bodies to God. Our hearts and our eyes and our ears and our mind and our stomachs and all of it. We present all of it in worship to God. Jesus illustrates that for us in his life. He came and lived that ordinary life that you and I live. He ate and he drank and he worked and he slept. And what do you think? Do you think there was ever a moment in Jesus' life where he was not worshiping? You can debate that later, but I would guess that there is never a moment in Jesus' life when he was not worshiping God. Now, the first like 30 years of his life, we don't have a record of really. We pick up the story of Jesus once he starts teaching and performing miracles, and, and he's traveling around Israel, and he's the, this beautiful picture. But the 30 years before that, he learned to trade. And he learned how to shape things out of wood and stone. And he got up and he went to work and he came home and he ate his dinner and he rested and he went to sleep and he got up the next morning and he went to work and he came home and he ate his meal and he rested and he went to sleep and he woke up the next morning and he went to work and he did the same ordinary things that you and I do. And I can't help but think that each and every day as he woke up and did that ordinary pattern of his day, each moment of it, it can be worship. He's called us to do the same, presenting our bodies each and every day as an act of spiritual worship. Present your bodies. And so we should probably address the fact that, well, this body, your body, my body, this body, it's kind of old, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of ugly, it's overweight, it's underweight, it has blemishes, it has scars, it's marked by disability, it's broken. Surely not my body. I mean, the sacrifices at the Old Testament they were bringing to the altar, these were spotless lambs. And I am not a spotless lamb. That's true. But 1 Peter 1.19 says that with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, Jesus was the spotless um, lamb who was free of any blemish. Hebrews 10.12 says that he offered for all times a single sacrifice for sin. So Jesus was the spotless lamb that was laid upon the altar once for all. Our bodies are not spotless. They are marked by sin. But we aren't offering our bodies on the altar for the forgiveness of our sins. We're offering our bodies on the altar out of a response for all the grace and mercy we receive from God out of gratitude. 
So yes, your body, imperfect, misshapen, crooked, sore, broken, present your body. We should probably stop comparing our bodies to one another. And if you want to compare your body to someone, maybe you could compare it to Jesus's. Because it says in Isaiah 53, verse 2, that he, Jesus, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I heard a preacher put it this way. God isn't looking for models for the cover of his fashion magazine. God isn't looking for models for the cover of his muscle magazine. God is looking for models of mercy. And Jesus was a model of God's mercy. And he has called you to be a model for mercy. He doesn't care how big your nose is or how the size of your waist. He wants you to go out into this world and model mercy. Romans 6.13 says, Use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right to the glory of God. Use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right to the glory of God. I was with Betty Kahn just a week or two ago. She's our uh, oldest church member. She's 102 years old. So we're really proud of Betty for many reasons. Probably least notably how long she's lived. But what an amazing person of faith she is. At 102, she's bound to a wheelchair, which can be discouraging, I think. She told me the other day that one of her healthcare workers told her that she's such an encouragement to her. And Betty was telling me, like, I don't feel like I can do much of anything anymore. I'm bound to a wheelchair. People have to help me up. People have to help me do all the normal things of life now. I'm 102 years old. I don't know why God still has me on this earth. Why doesn't he take me up to heaven? I'm so ready. I'm overcooked. Let me go. And I affirmed the words of her health care provider. I said, Betty, God still has you here. And some of your instruments of your body are broken. But you still have hands that work. And your hands, if you will, if you'll present your body each and every morning, and I know that Betty does, she presents her body each and every morning. Here are my hands. How can they be an instrument for mercy? Who can I reach out and touch with a loving touch? Your mouth still works. Who can I bless? Who can I give wisdom to? Who can I share with? Who can I be an encouragement to? So no matter how broken your body is, you have working parts that you can use as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. You can present your body as broken as it may be as an instrument for worship. So it says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's Paul, he's appealing to the Old Testament picture. You brought a sacrifice and it was killed. And so there's, with great clarity, Paul wants his audience to understand, and I think you understand just naturally that we're not saying go out there and sacrifice your life, right? Like go out there and fall on a sword. Go out there and you're called to martyrdom. Maybe some of us are, but that's not the point that Paul is making. He's saying that you should live a living sacrifice, Jesus' death was the last sacrifice to die on the altar. Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. 
So you are called to live each and every day actively as you live your life as a sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. You say, well, the life that I'm going to live as I leave here today, I hope it's holy and acceptable, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be a whole mixture of things that are not holy and not acceptable to God. And so what we should really highlight is what we see in the rest of Scripture is that your sacrifice is only holy and acceptable because of Jesus. Because Jesus died for you, you are now in Jesus. You are set apart. You are forgiven and clean because of Jesus. So our living sacrifices, our lives as we present our bodies, they're holy and acceptable not because of anything that we do. They're holy and acceptable because Jesus has forgiven us and washed us new and he sees us now as a new creation in him. And so he gets all the glory for the good things we do this week because he is the one who makes our sacrifices holy and acceptable. And then he says, which is your spiritual worship. So I have a slide for this, because as you look across all the different uh, translations that you might have in your uh, hands or on your phone, nobody seems to agree on how to translate this portion of Scripture. So which is your spiritual worship? Presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. I like the language of spiritual worship, but it could be true and proper worship. This is truly the way to worship him, which is your reasonable service, which is your spiritual service of worship, which is your rational, logical, intelligent act of worship. So we can debate whether it's spiritual or reasonable. We can debate whether it's rational or proper or whatever. But hopefully what we can all agree on is that it is worship. It's worship. And as we've talked about worship over these last five weeks, in week one, we, we talked about the Hebrew word for worship, and it's shakah. And we talked about how that Hebrew word for worship is to bend, to kneel down, to bow down, which is interesting because it's a bodily expression of response to God with our bodies. Another Hebrew word that can be translated as worship is the word avodah. And the Hebrew word avodah is interesting because it can be translated as worship, but this Hebrew word can also be translated in Exodus chapter 1, verse 14, to describe the back-breaking work of the slaves in Egypt. It can be used in Exodus 35, 24, to describe artisans who were building the tabernacle. It can be described in 2 Chronicles 8, 14, as what the priests did in leading worship for the people. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the first time it comes up in Scripture, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to avodah, to work. The Greek word that's used in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is a word that is latria, which can mean service rendered for hire. Work. It can mean service and worship of God according to the requirements of the Levitical law, and it can mean to perform sacred services. So what I find interesting is, it seems like whether you're in the Old Testament Hebrew or you're in the New Testament Greek, what's interesting to me is that God just uses the word work and worship sort of interchangeably. You're reading along, and you really got to look at the context and be like, does God mean work or does God mean worship? It seems interchangeably many times in Scripture. So it's almost as if we are the ones that seem to restrict worship to Sundays and work to Mondays. 
When God says, this Monday, I want you to go out there and worship, you say, what, God? And God says, oh, I'm sorry. Do you hear me say worship? Go out there and work this week. I'm sorry. They're the same for me. I can use either word. It's the same thing. So I think God is giving us more freedom than we give ourselves, which is often the case in our faith. Are you going to work tomorrow or are you going to worship tomorrow? Are you going uh, to lunch today or are you going to worship today? Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So if all of our life can be worshipped, then wherever we go and whatever we do, let's present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. I like the understanding of worship that I found this week from Pastor Ray Stedman. This is what he says. Worship is really nothing more or less than being what you were made to be and doing what you were made to do. When a flower blooms, it is worshiping God. When a bird sings, it is worshiping God. When a plant grows, fulfilling its appointed task with its leafy arms outstretched, it is worshiping God. And when a man, right in the midst of his daily life, right where he lives and where he works, worshiping uh, where he works, right in the midst of those circumstances is being flooded with God himself, he is worshiping God. The worship of a Christian isn't confined to those moments of Sunday morning when he gathers with others at church. That is just our corporate worship. We worship God all day long when in small or even obscure ways we reflect God to someone. Then we have worshiped. So as we go, I think the call is to be who God made you to be. Do what God has equipped you to do. Receive God's invitation to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your act of worship. I'll close with a, perhaps a familiar illustration, but in the movie Chariots of Fire, it was 1924 Olympics. It features two prominent runners, Eric Liddell and Harold Abrahams. In the movie, Eric Liddell's Christian faith is featured. Both men run in the 1924 Olympics, but for different reasons. Harold Abraham says that he runs to justify his existence. Well, Eric Liddell says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So there's two runners running for two different reasons. One runs to justify his existence. The other runs because he feels God's pleasure as he runs. So there's two artists who paint a similar picture and one seeks to justify herself through her painting. The other presents the work of her hands and the work of her arms and the work of her creativity, her body. She presents it as worship to God and feels his pleasure as she paints. Two doctors perform a surgery. One performs a surgery because she loves the feeling of being needed. Another performs a surgery to the glory of God and senses God's pleasure as she operates. Two parents raise their children. One finds their deepest sense of purpose in their children. And they ride high on their children's successes and they crash hard on their children's failures. Another parent finds their deepest sense of purpose in God. And on their best of days, they present their bodies as worship as they do laundry, change diapers, cook meals, help with homework. And on good days, as they parent, they can feel his pleasure. 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As I raked those leaves on Friday, the wind started to blow. And I thought to myself, this is the metaphor of my life, raking leaves in the wind. And I thought about the sermon, and I thought, man, it's easy to rake leaves in this room. It's easy to worship in this room. You can pile them right up. As we go out of here today, we're going to start raking leaves in the wind. So don't beat yourself up. Try your best. Don't overthink it. Don't underthink it. But try to do your best what God has called you to in that moment. Try your best to live lives this week of gratitude and to honor God in all that we do. And it's going to feel like raking leaves in the wind. But God looks down from heaven and he smiles on us because he sees our hearts and he sees what we're trying to do with our bodies. And I think he finds pleasure in us as we find pleasure in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our heart's desire is to give you our worship. In formal ways, like right now as we sing, but also, Lord, as we leave here and we just live these ordinary lives, we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be active in us today and this week. We pray, Lord, that you would um, help us. We can't do this on our own as much as we desire to. So we're dependent upon your Holy Spirit this week to help us see, have hearts of gratitude and to honor you in every area of our life this week. We ask that you would help us do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.